Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. I am here with Nathan. How are you doing? Oh, hi. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm here, and as are you, Gian. How are you doing? Oh, I'm the greatest, greatest day, greatest week, um, greatest year so far. Wow. Nice. Yeah, yeah. This is like peak life, I guess. If all those things coming together on the same day. Yeah. From now on, life is just going to be depressing. Oh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to recover from that. Uh, back. I don't think you can. Back when things were better in the past week, did you find anything mm -hmm. cool or interesting? <laughs> I did, actually. Uh, found two cool things. Okay. Uh, number one, I discovered vertical laptop stands exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just store them sideways, uh, completely eliminating the fact that there is a screen attached to them. Um, so you're just like, hey, now that I have external screens, I don't need my laptop screen, so I'm just going to treat it like, uh, I don't know, just a little mini computer or tower, um, which is, I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of the way laptops being treated. But I really love my vertical stand because I can put other things on it and it's saving so much space. Mm. So the Marie Kondo part is working really well here. Um, and then another thing I learned was AWS has this service called Step Functions, mm -hmm. which is just Lambda on steroids. I didn't know those existed. I just thought there's Lambda for one-off things. And then you do all your actual processing on APIs and building your own web services. But some people apparently were like, you know what we could do is instead of building a full-fledged application in one space, we'll create 20 different lambdas, chain them together, fire on events, and uh, it works. And it's good. It's just I'm pretty sure if you look out at the pricing, it's probably a lot more expensive than running your own EC2 server. Um, but uh, I, I thought they were cool. Yeah. I, there were a few that were named similarly that I was mixed up uh, when I was trying to remember which was which. Is this the one that's essentially a finite state machine that's all just lambdas? Sort of, yeah, because it, it preserves context between them. You can you can like send, receive information, or not receive, they're all one way. So one lambda can trigger another lambda, and then based on error or success conditions, you can define and have other um, actions execute and you can send data from one to the other, sort of. Yeah, because I know there's a few services that are similar where there's like automating workflows, which is called is something totally different. Um, it's like an ops pipeline Probably. builder thing. Oh yeah, there's a code build. And right, and code deploy. For code deploy. CI and CD, right. Um, I feel like this one is the, yeah, step functions manage state checkpoints and restarts. Okay, I think I think this is what I was thinking of. Um, but anyway, whichever one, if this was the one that's kind of described as a state machine, I thought it was very cool, having never used it, of course, just hearing about it. It's anything that's a state machine is just a neat implementation in my mind because state machines are, are neat, and I think they're underused a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, from, like, from a conceptual perspective, I really loved mm -hmm. it. I was like... Someone was like, what can we do to take lambdas to the next step? Let's chain them together. 
Um, as a DevOps person who optimizes for cost and performance, <laughs> uh, it did not appeal to me very much. You gotta think like it, a product manager, not like a DevOps person. That's exactly what I think. It I think it is sort of like providing the market for those who are like all no code. And even though you're going to have to write code, they're just like, it's all serverless, our complete application, because <laughs> uh, it's just running on lambdas being triggered by network events. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it just, it bothered me from that perspective. But I was like, conceptually, cool. If you want to pay more money to have done essentially the same thing, because you can just write six different Python files now, sure. You know, go ahead, live your life. Who am I? I'm just a DevOps person. Yeah, you're supposed to build it, not tell us how much it costs and complain to us about how we could do better if we just take it ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is these are my own thoughts. This is these are not backed by <laughs> AWS. I think I have to legally say that anytime I make a tweet or say anything by AWS. Right. It's not a bad idea, honestly. Was that it? <laughs> Might as well. Do you, do you yeah. Some other stuff? yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> No, that's it. That's all the cool stuff that happened. I guess frustrating thing. I was just talking to you about it before. Uh, what's up with those screens at dentists where they put it when you're just when you're laying down and you can't even watch because there's two people on your mouth over top of you, just like drilling and going crazy. You can't you can't watch. You can't enjoy. You can't you can listen. You can't listen to it. So they're just like here, something for your eyes. They could have literally put a cat poster up there or <laughs> left a like red marker on the ceiling and that would have been more interesting to look at, I guess. What were they showing on the screens? I think it was like magic by humans or something uh, or how humans do magic. I can't remember. It was some guy showing how to do magic tricks or something. Okay, yeah, that doesn't sound ideal for a dentist. The, the one that they play at my dentist, it's armchair tourism, I believe is what it's called. And it's, I think it's made for dentists or waiting rooms or something. Mm. It's just a bunch of images from, or videos, I guess, of a still camera, just taking a shot of some area of the world and just lingers on that for a minute or two. And then it goes to something else. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to understand anything. So it is very much just something for your eyes to, to look at. Um, and I think that would be a better implementation than how to learn magic while people are trying to scrape your teeth. Yeah, who even is paying for that Netflix membership? They're at a business. Is there a business account? Is somebody logging into their personal credentials? Is that even legal? <laughs> DevOps guy. <laughs> so many questions. There's <laughs> compliance issues, man. <laughs> right, right. Um, anyways, how's your week been? Uh, pretty good. I've been thoroughly mm. enjoying this morning chocolate i don't know if i mentioned that on the actual episode or just talked about it to you yeah but yeah i need to get more fat in my diet and i did a bunch of different things to do that and one of them was buy 85 percent dark chocolate so i've been eating that in the morning and that's a nice way to start the day before i go to the gym i wasn't eating anything before the gym which i've done off and on for years and i always remember like even when i just reintroduced toast like five years ago I would have toast with peanut butter. Like, why don't I always do this? I feel way better if I just eat something. And chocolate's fun to eat in the morning, so I'm all about that. But I did have something cool or interesting tech-related. 
I don't know a ton about it because I've basically learned about it within the last 36 hours, but for building some dev or some feature branch based dev environments, we're using a continuous delivery tool called Argo. Have you heard of that at all? No. Uh, so the basic concept is that Argo has apps which are defined just in a single YAML file and you'll say some basic things like what namespace it needs to go into. This is, this is how we're implementing it anyway. I think Argo has a lot of different things it can do, but we're using Helm charts. So it's a very small YAML file that has some of the basics of what the name of the app should be, uh, where what namespace it should be in, where it can fetch the Helm config, and then the Helm config itself is being you know, generated and populated with all the Helm magic that I'm not working with. But the point is, you pass one thing to Argo, tell it that it's going to be then receiving a Helm chart. It can actually detect that based on the config that you gave it. So when, you, when we initially set this one up, uh, we used the UI to generate a sample, con a sample YAML file. So we're just like, let's configure everything the way we want it, make sure it works. All right, cool, copy paste this YAML file, here's our template, and now I can go from there. And so, it's been, it's been pretty cool so far because it's very declarative. So right now we're using Spinnaker, which is very much this step, then this step, then this step, then this step, and you build up pipelines. Whereas with the way that Argo, at least from what I can tell, seems to do it, is you more so just say, this is what the app should be. And then it takes care of it. It can auto deploy and detect changes, which because it's development-based branches, uh, we're not too concerned about it deploying things. It's not like it's prod or anything. And so my current little task is to just set up a Flask app that'll listen or that will accept webhooks from GitHub. So when we open certain PRs and certain repos, fire off webhooks that'll hit this little Flask app. And then the Flask app will generate the appropriate YAML, stuff it into a Git repo that Argo listens to, and then Argo will spin up an app. So it's every part of it is super dumb and doesn't know about any of the other parts. But the end result is that you open a PR and a new app gets open. So uh, the whole end-to-end -end part is pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to having yeah. that done. Plus it solves all my big pain points of doing release managing stuff where currently, because we're using trunk-based deployments or trunk-based development where everything gets merged into a dev branch, uh, the code has to be merged into development before it gets automatically deployed to the dev environment where QA does its initial test, which means that we have half-baked, unproperly tested code that devs thought was fine sitting in development. And then if we want to cut a release branch, it's always a big mess because there's half-baked, untested code in there that we then have to finish testing and finish um, working on before we can actually ship it. So we're hoping that this will solve a lot of our problems, but the main thing they wanted to highlight was Argo, because if you're looking at for a declarative CE solution, this seems to be a good one. Everybody on the team's really happy with it, so it's not just my naive impression. The people who actually know what's going on and who are used to setting up Helm configs and dealing with manifests, they think it's great, so fingers crossed that it works for us. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just... Yeah, I until I use it, I guess I'll I'll just stay in suspense. But it 
Well, it has... Sounds like a cool way. It has a octopus wearing an astronaut helmet as its logo. Oh. So there's not really much else you need to know about it. No. Even even just octopus was great detail. Right. <laughs> the logo astronaut helmet just makes it so much better. Yeah, I think... That's, it's literally astronaut in the ocean, you know? You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even know why that song became such a, such a popular thing. Because <laughs> TikTok. Uh, oh, I, I don't know if I like the song anymore now. <laughs> but that's all I had on my list for this week, which means mm. I think we need to actually provide that value that you always want to provide. I just want to talk yeah, about Rocket it, League, but somebody here wants to talk about valuable dev stuff. I know. We'll come back to Rocket League at the end, you know? But as time moves on, there's data associated with it. <laughs> and speaking of time series data, Elasticsearch. Oh, these smoothest of transitions. Well, well <laughs> of done. course. Yeah. I didn't know, didn't know that that was going to be such a, <laughs> such a clean lead-in. <laughs> But it's actually true that the way that we're doing our event logging is with Elasticsearch. So my experience has been exclusively with, or I shouldn't say exclusively, almost exclusively with write-only data. So write once, read many times. And in this conversation, I'll be speaking largely as someone who's worked with like uh, SDKs and like the Python client, the Go client, to interact with Elasticsearch in a stuff documents in and search for documents on the way back out. And that's pretty much it. Um, so I've spent months doing it, but I've never dug deep into like the edge cases of using Elasticsearch. Um, what I do know is that everything you think you know about Elasticsearch is probably wrong. Where it's like, as soon as you assume yeah. that you know, like every first guess, my intuition has been wrong with Elasticsearch. And I go to the docs and I go, oh, I guess that's not how it works at all. Which is a real problem yeah. when you're implementing rollover strategies for indexes and compressing old ones and <laughs> that sort of thing. But we can get into all that as the conversation goes on. Uh, what is your description of what Elasticsearch is? I think you just gave the perfect description, which could also be the soundbite and the title. Everything you know about Elasticsearch is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Think again. Uh, but the the perspective I guess I'll bring uh, so that we have a full, nice conversation about the topic is more from the infrastructure side, uh, what it consists of, some history, uh, what are the things it's so good at and why everybody uses it. Uh, so like uh, overall description, uh, the, the keyword I mentioned earlier was a time series database. Uh, in our database, I think we had a database episode where we talked about different kinds of databases, didn't we? I think so. I feel like this is something we've chatted about. Yeah. Uh, go listen to that one because I'm sure it exists. Yeah, if it doesn't. No, we did. We did because I ended up calling it how to keep your database happy. No, so that's the one we did about database optimization. Oh. I thought we did one with like there are six different kinds of databases or five different I kinds. I think we did. Okay, we must have just talked about it out of the blue for some reason. Well, when we covered like uh, different storage strategies in the cloud, I think that was one of them. There we go. So yeah, go listen to that one too. Excellent episode because <laughs> I'm partial to all of them. 
but yeah, there is uh, such a thing called or a type of database is time series database where the the way they store information is timestamps. So in things, data in Elasticsearch on a very broad perspective is it stores data based upon a certain moment in time that you gave it and you can use it for uh, logging, you can use it for metrics and information, you can use it for anything related to if you wanted to know what happened over a period of time. So if you wanted to know how some foreign currency changes over a amount of time, you can throw in there, you can visualize and query it. If you wanted to, I don't know, store a whole bunch of movies information on it uh, from 1990s to 2000 and wanted to search through them real quick, it's 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 there. And that's the time series database is the way Elasticsearch is built. But the use case or the most popular thing it's known for is full text search querying. People love it. People love throwing a bunch of information at it and then just giving it some keywords and telling it, give me back all the records that matches this. And it's extremely fast at it, thanks to Lucene. Apache, shout out. Uh, they're doing so so great open source work all the time. Uh, they have not sponsored this because they're open source and probably broke. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they do great work. And Lucene is one of the databases they built. And Pretty much anything great about Elasticsearch comes from Lucene. And it's fully open source, great. I, I can't stop emphasizing how awesome it is. Even though I've never worked directly with Lucene, it's just every time I have a problem with Elasticsearch, I go look up Lucene documentation for the most part, and it's much faster to find information. Uh, for me, anyways. Well, I can confirm that the Elasticsearch documentation is an impenetrable nightmare. Everything's there. But trying to understand it or find exactly the thing is what the thing is that you're looking for is strangely difficult. When I was actually building anything out with Elasticsearch, I'd end up with two dozen tabs open because I'm like, if I close this, I'm never finding it again. And I just end up tabbing yeah. through and I'm just like, all right, this is exactly the endpoint you need to hit. Why are there all these underscores in it? I don't know. I guess it's just the way it is. Yeah. And unless you're on the right version, and I emphasize on right, <laughs> Because if you're too new of a version, their new documents have not been indexed yet, so they won't show up on your search. And if you're on too old of a version, uh, that's also not going to show up most of the time. So it's generally a good idea to tag your searches with the version of Elasticsearch you're on. But uh, you'll sometimes it'll be like version 7.6. Be like, oh yeah, by the way, we broke this change we made in like some version 6, which you won't find on the version 6 document or anywhere. So yeah, good luck, honestly. Just... That's why clients, when they follow the, the spec, are very useful, because then you just need the idea. Uh, the problem has been, when I'm working with clients, there is no documentation, and I just have to go to their, test, their unit tests and see how they use their stuff. Especially, we use this one Go client, and the client itself, when you get it working, seems to work great. But learning how you're supposed to even call the the functions or anything it was a real nightmare because you just essentially have to go to the source code and see how it's being run in the tests or how it was defined and cross your fingers that it does the thing because if you're slightly wrong as we discussed go will just barf in your face so there's no getting around it there yeah 
since you have lots of experience um, putting data into it and getting data out, tell us how the data looks like. What do you do, Nathan? What is Elasticsearch? Sure, sure, sure. So <laughs> there are two main strategies that we're using uh, on my team. I'm sure there are more, or I shouldn't say I'm sure. I would expect there are probably more. But the two main ones that we're using are one single index that just constantly grows and a rollover strategy where you'll load a bunch of data into an index and then compress it after time when it becomes no longer uh, the active index and then you generate a new index with the data and so you have a bunch of read-only ind indices and one read-write index. So what is an index? So if you're going to, let's say that we were going to load people data and you had the, the data included something like name, age, and address or city. And when you made the index, you only included name in the index. So if you want to search by name, that's going to be fine. As soon as you want to start searching by like greater than on an age, you're still going to start to have a bad time because it's not going to work the way you expect. You're just not going to get the results that you're looking for. I, as, 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 as I remember it, it's essentially just not searchable if you didn't index that field. Um, or at least it's very, very much a performance cost unless you do all fields and you just search it as content, which is not ideal as soon as you have any appreciable amount of data. Where it's, imagine like if you just went stringify or json.stringify and then you're like open text search inside of this, go for it. Uh, it's not gonna be ideal. So point is you then will design your index based on how you plan to use your data. And then you just load documents, which are for the most part, you can think of them as just like JSON objects. And you're just loading those into your index. And so your index will be a collection of all these documents and you need to configure your Elasticsearch instance such that it knows which indices to read from, which is fine if you only have one index. Same goes for writes. It's fine if you only have one index. And when you send in a search, it'll check all the read ones that you can read from. When you add one, it'll write to the only one that you can write to because you can only write to one at a time, at least with the way that we've configured our stuff. So that's the simple version, one growing index. The rollover version, you're going to have many indices that you can read from, and those are no longer being written to. And then the single one that is rewrite, that behaves just like a growing index, except you can put some rules on it and say when it gets to this document count, when it gets to this size, we want to stop writing to it, generate a new index based on some sort of index template, which is where you'll say something like we want to search by, you know, we, we want to index the name, the age, the city, and it will load any new data into the shape of the index. So the complexity comes in to as soon as you want to change the shape of your index, and that, I don't even know if I want to get into it quite yet, but generally speaking, that's how things work. And you want to choose your index wisely because most of my time has been spent figuring out good strategies for rolling data into a new index of a new shape as opposed to keeping it the same shape. Um, should I start going into like cert query language or, or what? Um, 
yeah, we could we could talk about the Corey. I'll touch on a, just a little elaboration of the things you mentioned. Okay. For anybody coming from a relational database perspective, uh, you can think of indexes as tables and documents as the columns in said tables. So that's how Elasticsearch on a rough basis stores data. It's got indexes, it's got documents, and then the way if you wanted to get more into scaling or how things work, uh, indexes are stored on shards. And the way the shards are divided, you can configure that, but it's generally just based on some ID and grouping. Um, and for the most part, you'll, you'll almost never have to think about it unless you grow lots and lots of data. Uh, that's when sharding becomes a little bit more important for searching and making things nicer for you. Um, but no, besides that, it's pretty, it's very free form. Uh, everything is stored as JSON. Um, you can send it in whatever way you want, uh, but underneath it's all JSON documents uh, on the database. And yeah, it's beautiful. It's nice and big and whatever documents you tell it, it'll optimize the search on those. Even though for the most part, it just by default indexes anything like that's text or keyword fields. Um, but yeah, you need better to get in the habit of templates and uh, figuring out which columns and how you want to structure your data so that if you do give it new columns, it doesn't freak out because it has the template to know what to do with the ones it already has. Yeah, so I'm realizing it might be confusing for someone who is listening to all the description of how to interact with it without a use case. So a, a mm -hmm. use case that we have that I was working on was we have all these event logs that just spit out what's going on in the system. So you're like, this user took this action, it had these targets, it resulted in this change. And we can group those by things like event type. And so we've got this thing in the admin panel that we built where you can type in to a search, a single search field, any open string, and it'll just start searching by content, which is what I mentioned before you ideally aren't going to do that because that's going to have to search literally everything. So we have pre-configured, I'm doing the we thing again. I can pre-configured a bunch of links that just pre-populate that search box so that if you click on, I don't know, uh, Active Directory, we have Active Directory integrations. You wanna just see the event logs for Active Directory. It'll pre-populate that with event type colon ad dot asterisk and what that's saying is give me all the events that are all of the logs that have an event type of ad dot whatever and because we've prefixed all of our active directory events with ad dot you get this free open search but now Elasticsearch is going to say all right all we have to look at is the event type um, field which we have properly indexed and we included that in the index template and said this is a, an important field I want you to make sure that you index it appropriately because we're going to search on it and that's how all of our event log searching tends to work but that alludes to this really powerful query language that is baked in and it's incredibly simple so it's confusing because there are two query languages and one of them's called a query DSL and the other one's I think just called their query language, um, query string, that's it. Query strings, which is not query parameters. 
and the DSL is something totally different. So I'll speak to the query strings, which is what I'm using, and it's insane. It has such a small number of operators and a fairly limited syntax, and you can still do pretty much whatever you would possibly want, assuming you have well-indexed data. So if a thing that has come up before is that if we have an event that's just filling up our system logs, I end up getting a message from say support and they're like, all we can see are these logs. How do we see everything except for these logs? Well, you can do that event type and then a minus sign. And it just says, give me everything that's not that. And you can also put parentheses around things and make ands and or clauses. So you can say like everything that has an every, every event where the actor was this user and the message contains this string, so it's not, it wouldn't be a good way to search for it, but you could say like everything about this, that this user did that included this text. Um, and you can put those together as an and. You can do things as ors, you can do a ton of stuff with a handful of characters and they're all valid things that you can push into a URL so then you can share these links, which is how I've set it up in our UI. So that then someone can share a query that, they're, that they are currently looking at with somebody else. They open it up and they see the same query because, or at least it makes the same query. If the data has changed since then, it's not much you can do about it. But the same query will be fired off and it's, it's shareable. Uh, so I've had a really positive experience working specifically with that piece, which is the query language. And the nice thing was that it was really easy to build because the simple query string language is essentially given to you for free. You just need to wrap your instance in something that forwards that query along to Elasticsearch. So we have our event log service. You say, I want all the log, or I want all the events. Also, I'm giving you this query. It just needs to know, all right, I'll ask Elasticsearch to include that query. And then whatever it gives me back, I give it you back. And you know, for a couple points in our sprint, we got huge query support. So that's been my big um, win with Elasticsearch where despite the weeks of frustration where nothing seems to work quite the way I expect, once it was all in place, it was this small change that was needed just to get a huge amount of query support, which if that's what you're using Elasticsearch for and it's working great, it's hard to complain at the end of the day. Yep. Um, yeah, lots, lots of great points in there, um, especially with the uh, just the how versatile query underscore string is. Uh, I always do that. That's my mental way of dis distinguishing between them: the query string and the query underscore string. Uh, so I don't confuse them in my head. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that was the. I essentially did pretty much the same thing. I was building this UI tool for everybody to search through these. And I literally was just like, okay, whatever you type in here, it's a Google-like search. Whatever you type, I can just pass it in query string blank with some validation and some cleanup. And it'll get you whatever data you want exactly as you pictured it to be. And just like we talked about in the database happy episode, um, if you think Elasticsearch is being really fast and you're getting everything really quickly. 
try removing the columns you don't need and then see the difference in the speed. It's insane. We we were searching through, I don't even know, a couple, couple of gigs, like 200 gigs of data, um, which was our average to search through. And the biggest problem was there was the log field because it was all event logs and then we logged, we would have all the metadata from the job run and then the entire log is one JSON blob object. And so it would still search through everything really quickly with bit 200 gigs of data and a very free form search, you could get back information between two or three seconds. Um, but the moment I removed the log field uh, to be returned in the results, it went to like some milliseconds. It was like 200 or something, which is insane <laughs> gains uh, just by omitting a field in the return body. It wasn't even that it wasn't searching through the the record. It was still doing that. It just wouldn't get it back unless you explicitly just said, okay, now for this document, give me back the entire log field, which is way more convenient to do because you're not going to look at thousands of lines of log in every single result that you have or cache that on the client side. That's insane. Um, so yeah, just having that freedom and unbelievably high-speed uh, documents um, was great. Sweet. So as I mentioned earlier, it's really important to index your data. And obviously, if you want to search on it well, you need well-indexed data. But sometimes product comes to you and says, users would now like to search on this field that we haven't added yet. And so you then have to reassess your index. So the work, this is coming up at some point for me in the next six months because it's always hard to predict how, uh, how far out these tickets that I hear about are actually going to uh, be. But I did something similar earlier this year where we were restructuring away from, I think it was an object type or maybe it was to an object type. It was one of the two. Um, and it was, going, it was going to give us benefits, I think, with searchability. So nested, that's what it was. So there's a nested object type that you can use in your index and it was causing issues because we wanted to be able to search on like fields, uh, you know, field and then dot subfield and then the value that you wanted to match on for that subfield. But with, I think it was nested, we weren't able to do that or it was object and we weren't able, whichever the, the way it was, we'd switch from one to the other. And so this wasn't a change in uh, the data shape. It was a change in the index shape with the same data. So this meant that what we had to do was re-index all the data. And the nice thing is that Elasticsearch will do this all for you. You just have to set everything up properly and then it does all the heavy lifting. Uh, so the keys here are if you are approaching this sort of problem or maybe you just want a better understanding of how things are working in Elasticsearch, you would go from a bunch, I'll just assume there was one index to keep it simple. One index with all your data in it. So you're constantly writing to this new index, to this index. You need to take this active index that's being read from and written to and re-index all that data into a new index of a new shape 
without dropping any of the data that's coming in. Because you can't just start re-indexing the data while it's being loaded and then switch to the new one because stuff will be lost. So the way that I wound up doing this was create a new index template, a V2 index template that was going to have the shape that we wanted, point writes to that one and reads to both of them. Because you can read from many, you can only write to one at a time. So then that meant that we're now writing to the new one, reading from both. So now the old one's essentially just old, uh, like frozen. Nothing about it is changing. And what that means is all you have to do then is ask Elasticsearch to re-index all your data. And you wait a few hours and you come back and all your data has been re-indexed. You're now writing, the, you're now getting uh, duplicate results, which is fine for our use case. It was worth it versus the potential complexities of trying to avoid that. But you re-index all your old data into the new data, turn off reads from the old one as long as, it's, as, long as you're happy with everything. And now you're only reading from the new one, you're only writing to the new one, and you're good to go. Uh, the keys with this is b being able to revert back. And the nice thing about it is that if you are indexing with a proper primary key, then you can actually re-index the new data into the old index, and it doesn't cause any duplicate results. So. Let's say that you're using a database ID or a UID or something, and new events are being written to the new index. You re-index everything into the new index and realize when you try to search on it, you get no results. You're like, oh crap, something's horribly wrong. I need to keep reading from this old index, but the new index, we're not getting new events on it. Okay, so let's just point the, re the writes back to the, the old index. So now we're reading and writing to the old index, but we've got these, in, these new events that have happened since just sitting in the new index. You can just re-index that into the old index, and because it's based on the primary key, those should all be unique. It will go back if there were any uh, events that were in both for whatever reason, um, like maybe you started the re-index process and then killed it. It won't actually duplicate those because it will find, oh, these are the same, and it can only go into the index in one way. So it'll just fit the data to that shape and you're good. So this is another one of the remarkable things about working with Elasticsearch is once you know how to work with it, it can do quite a lot for you, even if you are dealing with a seemingly difficult problem of saying, we need to re-index all our data and not lose any of the data in the process. So like keeping everything alive. It's fun. It's difficult and frustrating, but it's also fun. Yeah, once you're conceptually clear, uh, it does all the heavy lifting. You just have to make sure concepts are good. Mm -hmm. And once you're relatively familiar um, with Elasticsearch, if, if you haven't already, uh, two magic words, aliases and curator. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention aliases at all. Alias, we didn't even touch. Aliases is like the biggest the primary magic thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the basis uh, of all this. That's when I'm talking about pointing to one thing or another, that's essentially what I'm aliases. referring to. Uh, you have a reg alias and a read alias, uh, active alias, uh, whatever terminology you want to use. They're essentially just reads and writes. But you want to use those in your application because your application should not be speaking about specific index numbers. 
So like if you're using mm -hmm. multiple indexes, indices, you don't want to be saying blah, 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 index dash zero, 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 one in your application. You want to be saying active index or whatever you've chosen to name it. You know, my event log active or my active events index or something. Your application shouldn't know what the actual index name is. It should be using an alias. And that way you can do whatever fiddling around you need to do on the behind the scenes. And the application just keeps asking for whatever those active events are. And it, unless you've messed it up, then it'll get them back. Yeah. And what was the you, other thing you mentioned? Because yeah. I hadn't heard of that term. Oh, curator. So curator is a tool by Elastic. Uh, to manage indexes and lifecycle on Elasticsearch. So you can delete things, do rollovers, do re-indexing, do whatever you want to manage lifecycles on it uh, through this nice clean YAML file. So that's how we did it because, because we were in sort of a production while making changes mode, mm -hmm. getting all this hundreds of gigabytes of data a day, um, Curator really made it easy for doing all those index template rollovers because it would take anywhere between four to six hours for us to roll over all of these indexes into a new one. And it was only the last 14 days of data too. It wasn't even like it was terabyte, like massive information. It was just a lot of information. And we had daily rollovers. We had, um, yeah, information doing whatever it needs to do to... Um, Take care of it and was just all bunch of curator yaml files uh and we just run a docker container every evening to do our cleanup and it just is clean and simple hmm. yeah i haven't heard of curator i know that we have some uh like the client might be doing that behind the scenes that we're using i know we pass mm -hmm. some rules uh so we just have a single rollover function that runs in one of our go clients and it just says these are the maximums and if these are met then i need you to roll over the index so it mm -hmm. might be doing something with you said it was curator yeah might be doing something with that behind the scenes or maybe whoever implemented it originally at my team hand spun something and didn't know about curator i will uh give it a google after this at some point yeah 100 percent super recommend because that's what generally what people do they will go through the manual route uh, even the person on my team who was doing it all was writing all these Python scripts because it's just API calls mm -hmm. and Elasticsearch does everything. But you don't want to run through all of these calls or figure out what's happening if there is a managed solution, like you can just run to do it. Um, yeah. Spoken like, like a true recommend. AWS employee. Curator is not by AWS. No, no, no. You said <laughs> if you can just use a managed service. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, there's this awesome Elasticsearch managed service on AWS uh, that everybody should use. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the next good thing to touch. Um, Nathan, I'm sold. Elasticsearch sounds amazing. How, where do I get it? I don't know, actually. I'm sure if you, oh, okay. I'm sure you can find the open source version. <laughs> Maybe the clients still work. I know you mentioned them fighting about licensing for a while, so it's hard to know. But I know you just clearly hinted that you want to talk about AWS's implementation. So why don't you tell us? Well, I want to talk about all the options you have for Elastic. So Elastic offers three things. 
Um, there is the Elastic Cloud version where they'll manage and host your complete Elasticsearch um, cluster uh, themselves, and you just give them the configuration and you throw a bunch of money at them. Uh, the other version is in the good olden times when Elasticsearch was still open source <laughs> and not an evil company. Um, they had these, um, it was open source, so they're still available. I think last one was 7.9.10 or something, um, which you can download as binaries or Docker images or whatever. They'll still get some support. They're on some weird OSS license or something. I can't remember. Um, but you can self-host your own Elasticsearch cluster if you want it. You could get a bunch of binaries, deploy them on your own Linux containers, scale them however you want. And then the third option that's widely used is there's Elasticsearch on AWS, uh, which takes the open source version, uh, not the licensed evil Elasticsearch wanting to make money version, and yeah, hosts it. And I find it's much cheaper and better because I'll, I'll give my reasons. This I had this opinion before I started working for AWS was when you configure your cluster on Elasticsearch Cloud, it's scaled based on storage. So if you wanted something with two terabytes of storage, you're also getting like 144 gigabytes of RAM and like 60 core CPU. Whereas on Elasticsearch, you can say, I just want a 32 core CPU and 64 gigs of RAM, but give me 16 terabytes of storage because this is a storage heavy application. And I'll be like, cool, you'll just pay for a separate for these things and that's fine. Um, so that I found it better for like most use cases. Of course, Elastic Cloud has like billion enterprise solutions they just give you for free because you're using their service. So you make up for costs there if you're heavily using their services. But if you're if you just want a time series database to throw information at uh, for cheap, it's Elasticsearch there or just host your own. If it's small enough, it's cheap and not that hard to manage. Yeah, that's what we're doing, I believe. It's mm. it's hidden behind the ops team. They like to it's I, I'm I'm giving ridiculous amounts of permissions in production and nowhere else. So <laughs> so so half the time I don't know what's going on in all the namespaces I can't see. But uh, I'm pretty sure we're just hosting our own and not using the AWS version. I know we're not using the Elastic Cloud version. Yeah, unless you have millions of requests going on and like terabytes of data being searched through, you could probably throw Elasticsearch on a single cluster which has like 32 gigs of RAM and I don't know, like 16 core CPU and you'll get whatever performance you need realistically. Um, yeah, so it's very, again, it's Java, uh, so it will eat up your memory, but it works nice plays really really well um yeah so i did want to mention we talked about re-indexing but there's one other thing which is when you need to update your index and your old in your old index didn't have the data that you're now going to be adding so let's say that you added a field to your index and you're now going to going forward be loading all your data into that index with that new field. If you have write once, read many data, that old data is just never going to have that field. You'll never be able to search on it. Uh, 
it was not there at the time, you can't add it now. That said, if you have data that is churning, it's being written to multiple times, many times over and over, maybe it is something like user data that you just, whenever the user changes, you update that state in Elasticsearch, you could choose to have your application reload a bunch of that data into the new index with its new shape and that field included and then point all your reads and writes to that new index once it's been loaded. And again, using aliases, you can essentially do all of this side by side and then just point your data or point your reads and writes to the appropriate index whenever it's actually ready. So the nice thing about it is that you can do all your testing, make sure it's doing what you expect, and you can more or less do a blue-green deployment and just say, all right, switch over to the new index. The data is shaped properly. We can search on it the way we expect. Let's ship it. And then you can tear down the old stuff. Um, but I could see that being a misconception. Like if you change the shape of your index, you can't necessarily just re-index all your old data and expect it to work because if it's missing data, you don't get that from, from nowhere. Um, so... That is all, because product has been confused about that before. They're like, we already did this. I'm like, no, you asked for something different earlier this year. That was much easier. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, actually, on, on topic of rollovers and re-indexing, uh, if you don't want to make your ops team mad, or if you're the ops team and you don't want to be sad, um, <laughs> when you're doing rollovers, um, prioritize deleting and cleanup before. Um, because for a given data node, you only have limited shards. Uh, Elasticsearch or Elasticsearch data nodes have a limited amount of sharding available, and just it's just they have a higher fixed limit. And you can go into the Linux settings and try to update it, but the nicer, easier thing to do is delete anything you're not using, then duplicate or recreate data, or throw more shards at it if you're really running out of room. But we ran into the situation where we were rolling over all these indexes and we had tons of storage. We just ran out of shards. Right. So we had one index having like three different shard copies because they were like, we're being redundant, so it's good for data. It was not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we went and looked at the official documentation and stuff and they pretty much the situation we were doing, they were like, don't do this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we stopped doing it, and our indexes and data and everything was much happier after. Um, but yeah, keep your data nodes happy, and everybody else will be happy. That's live. That's just live. Yeah. Cool. I don't have anything else to add, I don't think, at this point. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, while I'm mentioning data nodes, I should also mention there's something called master nodes. So from an infrastructure point of view, Elasticsearch generally um, has two components. It has master nodes and data nodes. Um, if you have a single cluster deployment, they'll both be on the same server. But if you're smart and are practicing good follow, following good practices, you'll have one or two master nodes and many data nodes. Uh, data nodes facilitate all your searching and storing. And then master nodes handle any of the rollovers um, cleanups, any of the administrative tasks. Uh, so what you want is you want your master nodes to have high CPU, low memory, and then you want your data nodes to have high memory and storage and not as much CPU. And it generally works out. Cool. 
Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, I found that we had more to say there than I expected. You could just keep going. I couldn't. Let's talk about Lucene. Sh- yeah. And then we'll talk about Logstash and Cabana. Actually, working with Cabana has been super convenient for this because you can just port forward everything locally and then see what's actually going on without having to do any weird hacky stuff. It's like get index. What is the sh- state of my index? Search. What's the most recent data? Oh, this, this is what it actually is. Because we had something going on earlier today where someone had misconfigured something and it caused millions of events to occur. And QA was like, where are the new events? And I checked the workers and they're just filled with the same kind of event over and over again. And I was like, this is a problem. We're literally spamming our workers to the point where they can't keep up. And so it was a matter of just looking at the raw data and saying, what account is doing this? <laughs> let's let su- uh, support know so they can turn off whatever they're doing. Um, but that was through Kibana because the log output in the worker didn't tell me that. It just told me what event type it was. So I hop into Kibana, do yeah. a little search, see what's going on in QA, and I get the full event. Yeah, Kibana is extremely helpful. It has like the debugger, it has the console, you can run whatever you want against your Elasticsearch cluster. Um, and if you want to learn more about Cabana and Logstash and other components of Elasticsearch, tune into some future episode because uh, we will definitely talk about that. I want to have some content left because we've been lately running out of episode ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We made and since we made it to 32, which is a really good number, and uh, now now it's time to retire because we've covered everything. <laughs> that there's exactly 32 things in all of tech Correct. that we've done in our careers and can talk about. Yeah, I, uh, isn't this 33? Probably, but I'm saying we did 32. Okay. That was the That's last true. episode I uploaded. Now we need to transition into the Massonomic strategy. They've done 260 something episodes. And they just are the lifting podcast about nothing. They just talk about fizzy water and uh, things that are going on in North, Western Northeast South Dakota. So, wow. yeah. And they claim to be about lifting, but arguably not. So we just need to be the dev show about nothing. And then we can go on forever mm. just like them. Speaking of stupid thing that's nothing, what are you going to do better? And what have you done better well, on? I thought you were going to go straight into Rocket League. And I was going to tell you... Oh, okay, okay. That the next season... It's the same thing, though. The next season is starting very soon. It's... Oh, some somebody just sent me a intermediate software dev opportunity. Can't wait to read it. Um, yeah, the new season's starting. So they do season-based stuff in the game. So not like professional Rocket League seasons, but for some reason, seasons are a thing in video games now. And... Season three is ending, season four is starting, which means I'll do my placement matches, hoping to get a friend to do, my coworker that I mentioned before, who's basically the same rank, rank as me, I'm hoping I convince him to do placement matches with me so I don't have to get placed with randoms because in placement matches, they kind of reset your rank. And so everybody, like you can get, you can play against people who are literally the worst but you can also have that happen to you where your teammate's the worst or you can play against people who are both way better than you or one's horrible and one's great just because everybody's all over the place with their initial rankings. So I'd like to just take one part of that form of that equation out and have a teammate that's at least at my level consistently and then we can 
do our placement matches. But that wasn't even what I planned to talk about. Something I did better again. You'll never believe, well, you wouldn't ever believe it, except that I already told you. Uh, uh. I finally, after all this time, got a girl to show up for a date. So I went, it was a sh- And you didn't have to pay her. I didn't have to, no, not this time. Wow. So <laughs> it, was, it was short, but it was nice, and it actually was a date, which, which I was very, very shocked. So uh, It wasn't just a hangout. She wasn't just like, hey, um... Yeah, that's what you do on dating apps. <laughs> Let's take up a time to just hang out. It's sad how much that happens. You have to be very explicit nowadays. Yeah, I, I suppose. Uh, I'm counting mm. as a date. So don't you go telling me it was a hangout. I need this to be a date. <laughs> okay. So long both of you said it was a date beforehand. It's a date. Sure. I'm counting it as that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, didn't use an alarm this week, like I was saying. So in the mornings, just woke up whenever I woke up. Uh, called my mom, like I said I was going to. Heard about her porch. She's very happy with it. It took them six days instead of two days to build it, but it's looking great. Um, kept working on that experiment where I'm looking at things that are kind of far away and seeing how it helps my eyes. And my eyes are feeling a lot better. So it's not comparable to if I'm wearing my glasses because it's almost cheating how good my vision seems to be with glasses. But compared to what it was before, looking at, say, the text on a building that's a couple blocks away or something, this is now much, much better. So I'm going to keep doing that because I'm liking it. And I already alluded to earlier my uh, sticking to my diet as far as keeping fats in so I'm still feeling good, all that sort of stuff. Um, And dropped a, a pound or two, so things are going in the right direction. I wasn't planning on mentioning this, but I feel like it should be mentioned just because I'm talking about like diet and stuff. One of the like uh, most universally loved pro bodybuilders just died a couple days ago. So John Meadows, if anybody uh, listening, which would be a weird intersection of people who would know about John Meadows. But uh, if you know of John Meadows and didn't know that he died, I'm sorry to break the news to you. And there is a very nice video by Jeff Nippard, as you would expect, saying, you know, RIP John Meadows and a little tribute to the time that they spent together. So RIP John Meadows. Uh, Things that I am going to do better. So I probably need to get some new clothes because I just donated and threw out a bunch more clothes, which when you own almost no clothes is a bit of a problem. So I need to replace some of those. I really don't want to, which is why I put it on my list of things to do better because now it's public. And if I come back and say I couldn't even buy like, you know, a new shirt, then it makes me look really bad. So that's the main motivator. Uh, Keep playing guitar because I've been doing a bunch of that. Whether Gian says it's a date or not, I'm going to try to find another date. I didn't say that. You questioned it, which is more more than I need right now, okay? Okay, I need, all right, all right, all right. I need uh, endless support for my... It was a guy and a girl success. who talked on a dating app and then going up. out for a walk. Correct. So it's a date. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm going with. Yeah. That's It makes rational sense. Yeah. What was... Unless her profile said, just looking for friends. No, those are a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. Then it's good. All right, what do you got? 
Um, oh, I, I, I had a comment on you buying new clothes. Uh, I think at this point you should just go like full Mark Zuckerberg and buy the same shirt and same pants and like buy like 10 of them. So I've been given a small amount of fashion advice by my female friends in the past. And I'm always skeptical mm. of, of getting too much advice from my female friends related to attracting women because it doesn't seem to be good. But one of them said that like, girls will notice if you wear the same thing every day. Don't do that. It's just a, they it, will. it's just weird. And I was like, all right, I won't do that. Plus, um, it's if you're going to compare it to Mark Zuckerberg, I don't consider him to be a real draw that I'm trying to copy. Yeah, but you'll just be like, yeah, it's just a thing everybody in my like billionaire club does. And then she thinks you're a billionaire and you're instantly way more attractive than you right. were a second ago. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, you just be like, I'm just humble. And uh, while you're walking down the inner harbor, just point at any big yacht and be like, that used to be mine. And then I just didn't enjoy it, so I sold it. <laughs> so just building intricate web of lies about who I am. Well, yeah. Be very you, you don't want her to find you about real you. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, who wants that? Uh, yeah, we did dis- discuss pre-show last week that I am unlovable. So, no, <laughs> I was I was more approaching it from the perspective of you missed out on dating in your early twenties, so now you can be the douchebag you never were. Oh, yeah, you know you could make come up with fake names, um, like just have a bunch of lies all over the place. Mm. This is one thing I could do. I don't think that's the the do better strategy, but I appreciate your advice. I will file yeah. it alongside the other advice that I haven't taken. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, you know, a series of lies, I still haven't posted <laughs> anything on the social media. <laughs> <laughs> That's my did better, but I did make progress on it. So I actually put out some time, started looking at some tools, figuring out how I can curate some more content because um, I'm just trying to figure out how to make content, uh, which seems pretty hard. And yeah, so yeah, and I switched to a new morning routine, uh, It seems to be working really well. My mornings are a lot better uh, with it, but my evenings t- tend to just not be very good because I can't do anything in my evenings. And uh, yeah, so I need to figure out how to ma- manage the energy flow there uh, to do that. So that's part of my do better, uh, figure out a full day routine um, now that my morning's a little bit more structured I need to create a schedule so I have a mental context and map of okay this is what I need to do so that I can have mental energies and I'm hoping that will somehow inflict some physical energy of saying okay I need to do this later I should have some force or something I don't know I feel like I need to first think about it and then hopefully my body will follow um, yeah, and then just continue the, the social media stuff. Trying to see if there's anything on my notes here. Uh, nope. And going to get my bike fixed because it has a flat tire and I have to take the bus to the gym now, oh. which is not very fun. Would not recommend. Mm. You wait for the bus while pre-workout is kicking in <laughs> and then you just sit on it ideal, idly. Uh, earlier, at least I could just bike really fast get to the gym and yeah have a little warm-up before i start my workouts Uh, now i just walk in there and it's like cool Uh, i guess i'll start some stretches and warm-ups yeah 
Okay, get that bike fixed. Sitting on a bus <laughs> while agitated doesn't sound ideal. Yeah, I mean, my pre-workouts are all pretty pretty mild. Mm. There are like one cup of caffeine. I don't buy anything hard. I, I don't do the hard stuff. <laughs> uh, unless you do, you do all the hard stuff in case I do all the hard stuff. Every stuff. <laughs> all the stuff. All the stuff. <laughs> Just because I want to be cool. Um, but no, it's, uh, it's not the most fun. It's... I like to have things on my own time and waiting for buses is not that. Agreed. So got to get, get that control back, that illusion of control. Yeah, it's not a problem on the island. It's real nice. I live downtown. I can just walk everywhere. I could too. And then my gym had a COVID case. So I have to find a, I had to find a far further away gym. Oh, I see. <laughs> so really just blame a virus and not the city i live in which is much better okay all right you got me there uno reverse card yeah plus four no no on, i'm, on I'm already holding all these cards <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah just like everything's unexpected in life uh control is an illusion and uh, tune in next week guys bye bye